morning, Oak Ridge family. It's good to be with you again. If you haven't already, you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we began our march through this book last week, which will take us, no doubt, a number of months moving forward. We'll take some breaks along the way, but we are going to go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, God willing, until we come to the end. This book is a book that's focused on what it means, what it looks like, and what it will cost to follow Jesus. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that that's exactly how Mark starts this gospel. By outlining very clearly for us, he wants to warn us, as would-be followers of Christ, this comes with a cost. And he sets up examples to show us that. He says, look at John the Baptist. He was called by God. He was commissioned, given an assignment, and because of his faithfulness, there were consequences. And then Jesus comes along. He's called by God. He's commissioned, given an assignment, and because of his faithfulness, there's consequences. And then the disciples, they were called, and they're commissioned, and then Mark leaves a blank. And he says, can you pick up the pattern? Can you fill in the blank? And so for us, as disciples today, we know that we are called, and we are commissioned. We're given an assignment to make disciples of all nations. And to fill in the blank means that we, too, will have to pay a cost. There will be consequences that go along with our faithfulness. And to some, that may have seemed like a kind of a downer way to start the gospel, Mark. Like, couldn't you have started with a little bit more of a pick-me-up? But it came very clear that Mark just wants us to manage our expectations. If you are going to pick up this cross and follow Jesus daily, if you are going to be faithful to this journey of discipleship that Jesus is inviting us on, the blessings will come. They will far outweigh the consequences, but make no mistake about it, there will be consequences. And we need to be prepared for that as individuals and as a collection of believers here as a local church. Well, this morning, Mark turns his attention. He turns his attention from the potential costs of following Jesus to the desired attitude for following Jesus. How is it that we are supposed to go after Christ? What demeanor are we supposed to carry with us as we strive to follow him? So that's what we're looking at this morning as we carry on in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. So if you're able, I invite you to stand with me as I read the Word of God for us this morning. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21, down to the end of the chapter. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed. So that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. 
When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed at stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. This is the word of God. Please be seated. So Jesus had just called his first followers. And this small group goes down into Capernaum and into the synagogue where Jesus immediately begins to teach. And right away here, we see that he attracts a following. That people start to take notice of this new rabbi on the scene. And they take notice of him for a reason. It's because of this authority that he seems to have. The people have never heard or seen anything like this seemingly random rabbi from Hicksville, Nowhere, Galilee. They've never seen anything like him. The crowds, as a whole, they recognize his authority. In verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He stunned them. They'd never heard anyone talk with this amount of power before. Not even the scribes, the people who were at the day, that day supposed to be the authority. They were the, the legal guardians of the law. They were the walking commentaries. And they couldn't hold a candle to this guy. There's a whole different level of authority. And then Jesus performs an exorcism. In verse 27, again, they're amazed. So that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And so these crowds, they recognize Jesus' authority, not just because of his teaching, but also because he's commanding unclean spirits, and they're listening to him. So it's not only the crowds, obviously, that recognize the authority of this rabbi, but obviously the unclean spirits recognize the authority in this man as well. Verse 23, it recounts this exorcism that Jesus performs in the synagogue. There's this man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cries out, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? It's the spirit talking. Have you come to destroy us? He's admitting, this is a superior authority than myself. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. It's as though the Spirit says, I realize right now that I'm no longer in charge. You are a superior authority than myself. 
And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And so in a last-ditch, futile objection, the spirit eventually obeys. Because the spirit recognizes what the crowds are recognizing, that that this man has some otherworldly authority, the likes of which they have not seen before, and they must submit to him. Now, no doubt, it's a dramatic start to Jesus' earthly ministry. He comes in guns blazing, we could say. Jesus demonstrates his authority, and it's recognized by all who encounter him. This guy is different. He wields a power we haven't seen before. I don't think it would surprise us to see that that starts drawing a crowd. People start thinking, what is this? I've got to see this. I've got to go be near him. I want to see this for myself. I want to see with my own two eyes. And they start to follow him, and they come out to him in droves. And this is where Mark starts to create a, a distinction between two types of followers in his gospel. Two types of followers that carry two different attitudes with them for following after Jesus. Many will follow Jesus, but not all will follow him the way that they should. With the attitude God desires his people to possess. The attitude we want to possess as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. You see, most who come after Jesus in this text that we read this morning come after him with the wrong attitude. They follow him because, amazed by his authority and his power, they think he can benefit them in some way. That they may get something from him. You hear about this guy wandering around in the wilderness? He can heal, cast out evil spirits? i got to go see this. Why? Because it could benefit me in some way. Some temporal way he can heal me. He can better my life. To say it simply, a lot of these people follow him for selfish reasons. Notice first that the selfish response of the masses, the crowd. Verse 28. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere, as we would expect it to, into all the surrounding district of, Gal- of Galilee. So everyone's amazed, and so everyone hears about it. Okay, so it's spreading like, like wildfire, fast and uncontrollable. We ask the question, what are they amazed about? What is it that they're so taken by? They're so astonished by. What is the hot gossip? What is the the chatter around the water cooler? Is it that he's the long-awaited Messiah? Is it that he is ushering in the kingdom of God? Is it that he's calling for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins? I don't think so. Why are they gathering? I think it's because he has the ability to heal and cast out unclean spirits. Verse 32 When evening came after the sun had set, they, the crowds, began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. So word spreads and people flock. Not because of who he is, but because of what he can do. And let's just be honest. Most of us probably can't blame them here. If If I was in the first century and I was ill or someone I love was sick or demonized, I'd probably be with them knocking on that door. Touch my, my wife. Touch, heal us, please. I'd be there with them. But that doesn't change the fact that I would be following Jesus to get something. I'd be following him because of what he can give me. 
And yet, as he so often does, verse 34 tells us that Jesus helped many people in spite of their motives. He heals them, casts out the demons, as gracious as he is. Dropping down, we see the wildfire continue to spread in verse 45. This is after he, he heals a leper, as we read. And he tells the leper, keep this to yourself. But it was verse 45, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. So news is spreading. This healer is on the move. So much so that it starts restricting his movement. He can't actually get into the cities. He can't get into the synagogues where he wants to teach. He's restricted out to the unpopulated areas. But that doesn't stop the people. Did you notice that? They keep finding him. Where is he now? They hunt him down and they look for him. They want to experience healing. They want to experience this miracle worker. A more specific example of this same reaction to Jesus' power and authority comes in verse 40 where we see the selfish response of a leper. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So either the leper has seen Jesus or more likely has heard about Jesus and he thinks he can heal me. And so he finds him and falls before him and begs him to do just that. Moved with compassion again, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. So again, we see the leper seeking out Jesus, not because he's the Son of God, not because he's the one that John the Baptist came proclaiming in the wilderness, one who is greater than I is coming after me. That's not why he came to see him. He he didn't come to learn about the kingdom of God that's at hand. He came because the leprosy could leave me. It could be his ticket back into society. You remember in the first century, leprosy... You were automatically an outcast, kept on the outskirts. When people came near you, you shouted, unclean, stay away from me. But if that was removed, he gets his life back. You need to understand that this is an evil response by the leper. It's not malicious, but it's still self-serving. And yet Jesus, moved with compassion, heals him. So we've seen the, the selfish response of the crowds in general, and we've seen the, the selfish response of the, of the leper specifically. But Mark doesn't stop there. Next, he moves a little closer to home, and he hints at the selfish response of the disciples to Jesus' ministry. Verse 29. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, remember they had been coming into Capernaum, Jesus started teaching in the synagogue, they had the exorcism, they came out of the synagogue. They came into a house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So perhaps they're looking for a, a respite, a bit of a break from ministry. Verse 30, now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. The fact that she's lying down probably means it's, it's pretty serious. And immediately, the disciples spoke to Jesus about her. That sounds a lot like the crowds. She's sick. It's okay, we brought a healer with us. He just cast out a demon. I think a fever. I think he can handle a fever. I'm pretty sure he can take care of that. Their knee-jerk reaction is to seek out Jesus to meet that temporal need. We're not blaming them. We're not saying that's evil. But we are saying that hints at perhaps a misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. Later, we find Jesus off praying in verse 35, maybe going for another respite. He wants a break from ministry. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place. And he was praying there. 
Oh, here come the disciples. Simon and his companions search for him. Uh, that, that verb carries some urgency to it. They're searching for him urgently. They need to find him. Why? What's the emergency? They found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. It's not that they want to know about the kingdom of God. There's a lineup of sick people. There's a lineup of, of demonized people. And you're up here praying? Come on. We've got, work, we've got the ball rolling. Let's keep this going. Your fame is spreading. Let's capitalize on this. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, I'm making too much of these statements. I should really go easier on these people. And, and believe me, I think I would if I could, because like I said before, I think I would be in their midst. If I was there, I think I would have been knocking on the door. I would have been lined up to meet this miracle healer. I would have wanted to seen it with my own two eyes. But I think Mark stops us from doing that. I think he stops us from doing that because he shows us that these, these selfish responses, they demonstrate a misunderstanding of Jesus' mission. Fundamentally, the leper, the crowds, even the disciples, the fact that they're chasing after him for these temporal needs to be met, it's almost as though they don't really grasp the, the, the magnitude of what Jesus has come to do. Healings and exorcisms are, are not why he's come. In fact, Jesus himself says that in verse 38. After they frantically look for him and find him, he says to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. That is what I came for. And you'll notice, assuming that they listen to him and they leave and go to a different town, notice who he's leaving behind. That everybody, that lineup of people that are waiting for him, that are sick, that could have used his help, he leaves them to do what he considers his greater mission. And if we look back to last week's text in verse 14 and 15, we see him summarize his own mission. He came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. See, Jesus came to announce the coming of a kingdom where there would be no more leprosy. To announce the coming of a kingdom where there would be no more healings needed. He was looking at something eternal, something grandiose, and yet the disciples, the leper, the, the, the crowds, they don't quite get that. They, they see him as someone who can meet their temporal needs. And by doing that, by reacting selfishly to him, they're demonstrating the fact that they don't fully understand his mission. And it's this commitment to his God-given task that's in the back of Jesus' mind all the time. i got to go to my mission. i got to preach the gospel. That's what I came to do. That kind of explains why he continues to shh to the demons, to the people he heals. Don't, don't spread the word. Didn't you, didn't you find that curious? Whenever he encounters a demon, he says, don't tell them who I am. They know who I am. Isn't that also interesting? That as you go through Mark's gospel, it's the demons, the unclean spirits, who know exactly who he is and what he's come to do. It's the crowds and the disciples that are, they're kind of puzzled by him. Right? But the demons know exactly why. But Jesus says, shh, don't, don't tell anyone. I think it's because he knows that, that what's spreading around, the news of him that is spreading, is not news about his actual, his actual mission. It's this watered-down version that he's a healer, that he's a miracle worker. Come and, and get your temporal needs met. And he says, no, 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 don't spread that. That's clouding my mission. Don't spread that around. And we see in verse 45 that it actually stops him from doing his ministry. He can't actually get into the cities anymore. So he's saying, calm down. Don't spread that around. 
does it unsuccessfully, of course. Word spreads, as we said, like wildfire. And again, I want to I stress again, while their motives, these people, their motives might be understandable and harmless, the crowds, the leper, and even the disciples, they came after Jesus for personal gain. What can he do for us? They thought he could meet a temporal need, and ultimately they followed him selfishly. Most of us would not be quick to point the finger at them, though, would we? We can probably relate to that, because we probably do that from time to time as well. I remember a time in my life in which this selfish attitude defined my relation with God, highlighting my ignorance to his mission, what he was trying to accomplish. To my shame, I remember thinking, and probably even saying out loud, after I left a church service, a Bible study, well, I didn't really get a whole lot out of that. I didn't didn't get much out of that study. I didn't get much out of that sermon. I didn't get much out of that prayer meeting. As if that is the defining characteristic of what's helpful for me. The fact that I don't perceive that I got anything out of it. And even as I admit that, my mind goes back hours to conversations I've had with my five-year-old. Where we are constantly at this stage of life trying to teach him subtly sometimes and not so subtly at other times, that it's not all about you. I want to go to the park now. Well, we don't all want to go to the park, Jonah. I want to eat now. I don't want to eat later. Jonah, listen, there's other people here. It's not all about you. And as frustrated as I get with that young boy, sometimes I wonder if God looks down on me and says, how many times do we have to go through this, Josiah? It's not all about you. It's not all about you. And the times I catch myself thinking that way about God and his work in my life, I have to step back now and just say, am I, am I not thinking right about his mission? That maybe it's about what he's doing through me and other people and less about what he's doing for me. Well, back in Mark 1, having seen here that, that selfishness is the wrong attitude, that Mark that Mark is describing for a disciple. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to be following him for personal gain, what we can get out of that relationship. Mark now turns to the right attitude, which is selflessness. Not selfishness, but selflessness. And this attitude is found, exemplified in this passage, in an unnamed character that only gets two verses of recognition. Simon's mother-in-law. Now Mark is about to do here what he will actually do four more times in his gospel account. Mark has a bit of a soft spot for women, it seems. Throughout his gospel, there's actually five women, all unnamed, all anonymous, that Mark uses as exemplars of specific characteristics of faithful disciples. He holds them up as examples. We have the first one here in chapter 1, Simon's mother-in-law. In chapter 5, we'll meet a hemorrhaging woman. You've probably heard that story before. In chapter 7, a mother of a demonized daughter. Again, no names. We don't know who they are. In chapter 12, we have a poor widow. And in chapter 14, a woman with perfume. Five women, all anonymous. And these women, Mark uses to illustrate a specific facet of faithful discipleship, oftentimes by contrasting them with all the other characters around them in the narrative. Oftentimes they're men. Subtle jab 
to us guys, maybe. Surrounded by men, and oftentimes surrounded by his disciples. So what Mark will do is he will show this is what it does not look like to follow Jesus faithfully in all of these people. And then he, up on a pedestal, he puts this unnamed woman and says, look at her. That is a characteristic of a faithful disciple. And that's what we find here in Mark chapter 1 with Simon's mother-in-law. We find her exemplifying the selfless servant attitude that disciples like you and I should aspire to have. Verse 30. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. She's healed. She gets up. She serves them. She's healed. She gets up. She serves them. Nowhere else do we find people here in this narrative serving or giving back to Jesus or disciples. They're all taking. They're all coming to see what they can benefit. But here, this unnamed woman, Simon's mother-in-law, gets up and starts serving immediately. This woman didn't come looking for Jesus to be healed. How could she? She she was at death's door, wasn't she? She's laid out with this fever. She didn't come looking for him. No, he came to her in her helpless state. And in a demonstration of his power and his grace, he made her well. And that is exactly how God came to each and every single one of us as Christians. In our helpless state, he came and lifted us up and made us well. Last week, we looked briefly at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to go back there again just for a moment, because we see this illustrated so clearly in the opening five verses. You're familiar with this text, but let me read the first three verses again. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Translation, we were dead, and we were helpless, and we were enslaved, and we didn't even know it. We were on that bed with a fever of sin sickness, and we loved it. And then God came to us, didn't he? But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Each and every one of us. He came to us. He raised us up. He took us by the hand. And the fever of depravity left us. Our eyes were opened. The question is for each of us, how do we respond? We've been lifted up out of this bed. How do we now respond? Do we respond selfishly like the masses, like the leper, like the disciples, looking to get? Do we say things like I said so many times, and maybe you have as well, I didn't really get much out of that today, as if that is the end? Or do we respond like this woman, who in response to being delivered starts serving out of gratitude, looking to give? And just as we saw that that following Jesus selfishly, it demonstrates a a lack of understanding of his mission. We also see here that following Jesus selflessly evidences an acceptance of Jesus' mission. If selflessness will mark a disciple's life, it screams out they know what his mission is about, and they've decided to take up that cross and follow him. A life that is marked with selflessness. 
Because if we are to be followers of Jesus coming after him, if we are to become more and more like him, then probably, I mean, the mission that we carry out should look a lot like his mission, right? The more we become like him, the more we identify with his mission by the power of the Holy Spirit, our walk should look a lot like his walk. And in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, Jesus identifies his mission. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The ultimate selfless life, complete selflessness, complete servitude, and it went to the point of giving up his life for us, dying for us. That's the ultimate mark of selflessness, isn't it? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can't serve much more selflessly than that. Selflessness characterizes a disciple of Jesus that understands the mission of Christ. They understand their own salvation and motivated by gratitude, they serve others in the name of their Savior. Disciples follow to give, not to get. That characterizes the life of a disciple because we first know how much we've been given and that motivates us to live a life that looks the same. Now, many of you do this already. My family and I have experienced firsthand the selflessness of this congregation in our transition. You have made us feel so welcome and demonstrated a Christ-like attitude to us, many of you. So I want to acknowledge that right off the bat. But we can always improve. We can always become more conscious of where we're falling short of this selflessness. We can always seek God and and ask the Holy Spirit to, to root out the selfishness that remains in our life. That's what we want to do. Sometimes it starts with just, Lord, I'm confident that there is still a plaque of selfishness somewhere on the walls of my life that I need to scrape off and kill. Show it to me. Because sometimes I'm blind to it. Bring other people into my life that will say, hey, that's kind of selfish. Make them as harsh as they want to be. I want to kill that selfishness so that I can be more like your son. I want to be more like Simon's mother-in-law. I want to be selfless. I want to serve out of gratitude for what you've done to me. And perhaps for some of us, that would mean, okay, Lord, how do I approach church? How do I approach this? Do I approach it in such a way that I am, if I'm honest with myself, sometimes gauging its effectiveness by how much it gives to me? Rather than acknowledging, hang on a second, I've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit for the building up of other believers— That means all of us have been gifted to serve this body. That would mean that if all of us are not serving one another, then we are less than we could be. Is that the way I see church? As a place to pour myself out rather than to fill myself back up? Perhaps it's with the attitude with which I I look at the poor, the disenfranchised, the, the homeless, the orphan, the widowed. Do I look at them primarily as as inconveniences. They make me uncomfortable. Or do I see them as opportunities to show Christ's exalting selflessness, to serve them, to build them up? Maybe that's where the Lord reveals the selfishness that remains in my heart. Maybe it's the attitude with which I think of the lost. We all have God-given circles of influence when we leave this building. Friends, family, co-workers, classmates, No doubt there are unbelievers in those circles of influence, and that's not there by accident. It's providentially put there. How do I think about those people? 
when I interact with them, am I crossing my fingers hoping that matters of faith don't come up? Or am I burdened for them? For their souls, knowing that, that they, like Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 2, that they are dead. And without God, they will remain that way. Am I burdened for them? Do I pray for other believers? Am I, am I wanting to intercede on behalf of my brothers and sisters because of struggles that they're going with? That's a mark of selflessness, is it not? I'm concerned with them. I'm dying to myself, wanting to lift up the body of Christ. Father, show me. Show me where I lack that selflessness, where I lack a Christ-like attitude in following you. Because I want to kill that. I want to replace it with something that pleases you. You and I, we were all at one time lying sick with an ever-worsening fever of depravity. We were dead to rights and enslaved to that sin sickness. And Jesus came to us, took us by the hand, lifted us up, and by responding in faith, that fever left us. And we're now standing here left with a choice as would-be disciples of Jesus. And Mark puts the choice to us. How will you follow him now? Will you follow him with an attitude that is marked by so many, so many selfishness? Or will you follow him with the attitude of the mother-in-law, the attitude of Christ, and come to not be served, but to serve? And to metaphorically lay down your life for other people. That's the mark of a disciple, a disciple that understands the mission of God. By God's grace, I hope we choose the latter as individuals and as a church. I hope we do. I want to close by reading um, an excerpt from a book I read a number of years ago by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. Uh, In chapter 3, the title of the chapter is called Eyes on Eternity. And I'll close with this anecdote he opens the chapter with. The streets of Cairo were hot and dusty. Pat and Raquel Thurman took us down an alley. We drove past Arabic signs to a gate that opened to a plot of overgrown grass. It was a graveyard for American missionaries. As my family and I followed, Pat pointed to a sun-scorched tombstone that read, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. Borden, a Yale graduate and heir to great wealth, rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. Refusing even to buy himself a car, Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. After only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. I dusted off the epitaph on Borden's grave. And after describing his love and sacrifice for the kingdom of God and for Muslim people, the inscription ended with a phrase I've never forgotten. Apart from faith in Christ... There is no explanation for such a life. May people say that about our lives. Whether it's while we're living or after we're gone. May they look back at our lives as individual Christians, as individual followers of Christ, and as a church, as a local body of believers, and say, that doesn't make sense how they live. Apart from that that gospel they preached, apart from their faith in Christ, that life does not makes sense. That self-sacrificing service, it just doesn't make sense. May God grant us the grace to have such a reputation, to bring the gospel to a world that desperately, desperately needs to hear the reason for the hope that we have. Let's pray together.